Welcome to the Walkworthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Morning, everyone. These are such incredible truths that we are able to sing about together and to hear about together as we read God's Word. And it's all because of the incredible and majestic, gracious, loving God that we have. Uh, We are so richly blessed in and through Him. And it's such an encouragement to be able to join our voices together and be together in this place. And so I'm very grateful for the stirring of heart that uh, uh, the Lord is pleased to cause through the servants who serve us both up front and those behind the scenes. So thank you, everyone, for leading us the ways and serving us the ways that you have this morning. The world's largest cargo ship is called the Ever Ace, and it boasts a carrying capacity of 23,992 containers across its 1,300 feet length. I think it's like 60 feet wide. It's 1,300 feet long. If one end started where I'm standing, the other end would be sitting in the Johnson Center parking lot, if you know where that is, or if you want to visualize it this way, if one end was sitting here, the other end would be on the other side of the river, so down Queen Street across the bridge and sitting on the other side. Fully loaded, carrying just under a quarter of a million tons, it can travel up to speeds of 40 kilometers an hour. The ships have so much momentum that if the engines were cut dead stop, the Everace would travel more than 16 kilometers before it would come to a halt. These things are behemoths. Now here's what I want you to picture. Imagine someone hitching a kayak to the back end of the Everace going at full speed, and paddling with all of their might in the opposite direction. What difference do you think that would make to the ship's speed and the ship's direction? About the same difference, our efforts to impede the will of God, which is the theme of this morning's passage. It can be tried, but it cannot be done. And as every captain would walk to the back of the ship to laugh at the futile efforts of the mad paddler, so God too laughs at efforts to thwart his glorious will. Now we know this, of course, but that doesn't mean in our sin and folly we don't attempt to slow it down or alter its course because it doesn't suit our lives. We know this, of course, but sometimes we lose sight of that day of the bigger picture. The loud splashing and groaning of the crazy, the crazy kayaker, thinking that all their noise is making a difference, that draws our attention, especially when they're joined by more. If the shore was lined with thousands of people cheering them on with wild claims that it was making a difference, well, maybe doubt would begin to creep in. And we would begin to question whether God's purposes will actually reach their intended destination. 
we begin to imagine that God maybe needs a little bit of our help. Even convincing ourselves that God-glorifying ends justifies sinful means so long as we get there in the end. But this resistance is futile. And the doubt is really rather offensive. And our assistance is entirely unnecessary, meaning that there is absolutely no place for sinful corner cutting. To convince us of this, which is needful for us while surrounded by resistors to God's will and those who cheer them on, I'm going to ask this question of our text this morning. Who can resist God's will? It's a phrase taken from Romans 9. Who can resist God's will? And to answer that, we're actually going to look very closely at five different types of splashings of people trying to resist God's will, to remove all doubt in our minds of anyone's ability to actually change its course or its speed. So turn with me to Genesis 26. That's the text that we will begin with, and we're going to actually work through 40 verses of Genesis 27, but there's a couple of verses in Genesis 26 we didn't didn't touch last week for, for purposeful reasons. And I'm not going to read the text out front. I'm going to read it bit by bit as we go, because there's incredible tension in this episode, and I want to sustain it as we go through. So Genesis 26, beginning in verse 34, and we'll work down to Genesis 27, verse 40. But as we always do, and we always need to, let's pray to ask for God's help before we turn to his word again. Father, as we were reminded in the reading that Brian uh, uh, read for us this morning, it's possible for us to read these words, to understand their meanings and definitions, to get what they're saying, to understand the main point of a passage, to get the logical flow of an argument. It's possible for us to do this and yet care not at all because these are spiritual truths and they cannot be discerned apart from the help of your Spirit. And so we do pray that by your Spirit, Lord, that you would help us to understand and believe and obey your Word as it is opened to us now. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would enable this implanted Word to take root within us, which you tell us, is able to save our souls, and so will make us to be hearers of this word and doers also, that we might glorify your great and majestic name. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this morning's passage, there is some essential context to keep in mind involving the four characters of the story. So we're going to be running again into Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob. And so a brief biographical sketch on each of them so far. First, there's Isaac, son of Abraham and Sarah, the laughter-inducing gift of Yahweh in their old age and years of barrenness. He's the divinely appointed son and heir of Abraham and recipient of the covenant blessings as we saw last week in Genesis 26. Next is Rebekah, who we first met as a young woman who was servant-hearted, very industrious. She agreed to marry Isaac, And after 20 years of barrenness herself, she bore twin boys, 
after Yahweh opened her womb in response to Isaac's prayers on her behalf. During the cage stage of her pregnancy, as the two boys smashed each other in the womb, she was given the following oracle from Yahweh in Genesis 25, verse 23. He said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And then we meet Esau sometime afterwards, the firstborn twin of Isaac and Rebekah. He's this ruddy, hairy outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He's a favored son of Isaac. But he's also an uncouth and profane man, controlled by appetites, who sold his birthright to his younger brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. And then there's Jacob, the second-born twin of Isaac and Rebekah, who left the womb grabbing onto his brother's heel. He's a smooth-skinned, quiet man, favored son of Rebekah, who calculated and schemed to finagle Esau's birthright in a very opportune moment. And as we continue the story of this covenant family, tension mounts as the sinful flaws causing fractured relationships, they start to rub against the grain of the sovereign will of God. God's purpose of election has been stated. The seed of the woman and the covenant with Abraham will continue through the younger son Jacob, not the older son Esau. But as we will see, not all members of the covenant family are on board with this. And even those who are, they employ disgraceful measures to see that it happens. Which raises the question we're asking, can Anyone resist the will of God? Can it be thwarted? Can it be tainted? Can anyone resist the will of God? And more specifically, asking firstly, can the spiritually unfit resist God's will? Can the spiritually unfit resist God's will? Look at verses twenty, uh, chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. If we ignore the chapter and verse divisions, which are uninspired help, for navigation, but they're not always put in the best place. We learn more about Esau at the end of Genesis 26 that relates to what comes next, not what comes before. So let me read those verses. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Sadly, the bitterness of soul as a result of these women, is about the only topic that Isaac and Rebekah seem to agree about in this passage. Now, unlike Isaac, who at 40 married Rebekah, after Abraham went to great lengths to secure a wife for him so he wouldn't marry a Canaanite woman, Esau marries not one, but two. Perhaps this is an indictment on Isaac, who didn't follow his father's footsteps to find a suitable wife for his firstborn, Or it could be an indictment on Esau who broke all protocol and rejected any wisdom and guidance from his father regarding marriage. And what this biographical data reveals is that Esau is a spiritually unfit candidate to carry the covenant legacy that began with Abraham and continues with Isaac. In fact, this whole episode is framed by Esau's improper marriages. In the aftermath of what is about to happen, Genesis 28, 8 and 9 tells us, So when Esau saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. 
Now, what's improper about them has nothing to do with where they came from. This is not an ethical matter, an, an ethnicity matter. It's not even primarily that he had multiple wives, which is a clear violation of Yahweh's design. The problem is the gods that these women would have been associated with. The surrounding nations were not Yahweh-fearing people. So to intermarry with them was a significant compromise that biblical history teaches us is spiritually disastrous. There are substantial warnings in both the Old and New Testaments telling us that men who are in covenant relationship with Yahweh should only marry women who are in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And we could say the same the other way around. Women who love Jesus as his disciples should only marry men who love Jesus as his disciples. Doing otherwise only results in bitterness of spirit one way or another. And much more could be said about this. And if you have questions or you want to have conversations about this, I am very willing to do that. Maybe it's a podcast topic discussion, but I don't have time to dig into it now. But I, I'm, I know some of you will be very keenly interested to talk more about this. And uh, that's an open invitation to do so. In this case, Esau's marriage was felt keenly by Isaac and Rebekah in verse 35. The faith of these women and the ways of these women would not have been the faith and ways of the covenant family, which grated at their souls at every turn. And noteworthy is the absence of any bitterness of spirit felt by Esau, which is perhaps further evidence of his spiritual unfitness as a covenant heir. He despised his birthright as the firstborn, and he has aligned with the seed of the serpent by marrying outside the boundaries of, covenant, of the covenant family. Herein lies the tension of this scene. Naturally speaking, Esau as Isaac's heir Will he receive the blessing? Can this spiritually unfit man succeed in resisting God's will? And what intensifies the question even more so was that Esau is Isaac's favorite. And Isaac is a whole lot more like Esau than he should be. The tension of the scene increases because we have to ask, secondly, can the sensually misguided resist the will of God? Can the sensually misguided resist the will of God? In 27, 1 to 4, Isaac is not presented in a favorable light whatsoever. We often think in this whole Jacob-Esau conflict that Jacob is the problem. He's primarily the issue, but he's not. Yeah, he's a snake, don't get me wrong, but Esau is profane, Isaac is compromised, and then there's Rebekah, we'll get to her in a minute. The covenant family, though, is a mess, is a sinful mess. So let's check in on this, starting in Genesis 27, verses 1 to 4 with Isaac. This is what it says. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. There are a number of concerns that emerge here about Isaac. One, 
he's shown to be really rather ignorant in contrast to other important biblical figures who are told about the time of their death and who make appropriate arrangements in light of this. But not Isaac. Two, Isaac has two sons, but he only expresses a desire to bless one of them. And again, typically all sons will be called for on such an occasion as Jacob does at the end of Genesis with all of his kids. And so this this is problematic and heightens the favoritism that's rampant in the covenant family. Three, Isaac seems to be more controlled by his passions than he ought to be. We're going to hear not a few times about this delicious food such as Isaac loves in what is to come. We're also told back in Genesis 25, 28, that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. The guy seems to like a good steak. But he's controlled by his passions. Like Esau, who sold his birthright to satisfy his stomach, Isaac seems to be guided far too much by his own appetites than by what Yahweh has previously revealed. He is deciding to unilaterally bless Esau without Jacob even being present, even though the Lord has indicated the older will serve the younger. So as Isaac has aged, his previously sharp spiritual edge, we saw just a chapter previously, it's grown dull. And he values his desires for his son Esau more than God's desires for his son Jacob. And here is another caution that we would never coast in the Christian life as we grow so that we might finish well. But because of his sensual appetites, Gordon Wenham writes, the stakes are very high. Will Isaac and Esau triumph or Rebecca and Jacob as the Lord promised? Who can resist God's will? Now, as the chapter continues, the plot thickens because Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is eavesdropping. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7. Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Did you catch the fault lines, the relational fault lines? Isaac spoke to his son, Esau, not their son. Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, it's not their son. I, I heard your father speak to your brother, not my husband speaking to our son or uh, your brother. No good can come from discord like this within families. Let's keep reading what Rebecca does next, verses 8 to 10. Now, therefore, my son, she says, obey my voice as I command you. This is strong language. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. There it is again. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So in hearing this, Rebecca is rightly motivated She's rightly motivated. She kicks into high gear to try to stave off the disaster that is about to unfold in Isaac's blessing of Esau. She, at least, has not forgotten about the oracle that was given to her in pregnancy. 
She at least is remembering the bitterness of soul that Esau's improper marriage has caused, deeming him unfit as a covenant heir, but her methods are abysmal. Leading us to ask, thirdly, can the, this is a bit of a mouthful, but it's the best I could do, can the methodologically scandalous resist the will of God? Can doing the right thing wrongly get in the way of what God is doing? What she's proposing to Jacob here is that she take advantage of her aged, blind husband. And that he take advantage of his aged, blind father. This is awful. Horrible. And when Jacob opens his mouth in verse 11, you think maybe, just maybe, he will recoil at the prospect. But no, he only points out the flaw in the plan and the downside if it doesn't work. Look at verses 11 and 12. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Apparently, living up to his name, he has no issues with the concept, only the execution. We'll come to his deception in a moment, but notice first that Rebekah plays every card a mother can to persuade her son. Look at verses 12 to 17. Sorry, Jacob, has, I didn't finish the quote here with Jacob. Uh, verses, sorry, verses 13, picking up in verse 13. Jacob's concerned that he will bring upon a, a curse and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of Jacob, of her son Jacob. So she doubly commands Jacob's obedience. Time is of the essence. Esau, it could be back. We don't know when. She offers to take any potential curse on her own, uh, upon herself as though that were possible. And she does absolutely everything after Jacob gets the goats, preparing the delicious food such as his father loved. There's that ugly conflict again. And she compensates for the differences between Esau and Jacob, expecting that this would satisfy Isaac's sense of touch and smell, which is the only sense he can depend on along with his hearing. And then she puts the food into Jacob's hands, who is left to accomplish the rest before Esau comes back. And here we really need to pause the story to think about the consequences of doing the right thing the wrong way, of convincing ourselves that the ends ever justify the means. If Rebecca's plan backfires and Jacob is discovered before he receives the blessing, then there is no way on this earth that Isaac is going to bless Jacob. They would be undone. Griffith Thomas writes, Righteousness can never be laid aside even though our object is more righteousness. In personal life, in home life, in church life, in endeavors to win people for Christ, in missionary enterprise, in social improvement, and in everything connected with the welfare of humanity, we must insist upon absolute righteousness, purity, and truth 
in our methods. Why? Because if we don't, we shall bring utter discredit on the cause of our Master and our Lord. I like these questions by Kent Hughes. Believer, are you playing games with God's Word? Are you attempting to control its application? Are you engaging in unrighteous means to bring about righteous ends? Are you fighting against His Word? If so, stop it. You just stop it right now and give it up. And say with your Savior, your will be done. Yielding to his invincible determination to fulfill his word, Kent Hughes writes. But that's not what Rebecca does. Yet having done everything she can think of, even crossing boundaries that she should never have crossed, all she can do now is simply wait and see what happens. The rest is up to Jacob. And he almost blows it. And it prompts a fourth question. Third, can't remember. You can keep track. (laughs) Question is this. Can the sacrilegiously deceptive resist the will of God? Can you thwart it? Can you twist it? Can the sacrilegiously, blasphemously deceptive thwart the will of God? Pick up in verse 18 with me. So Jacob went into his father and said, My father! And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Here's deception number one. Who are you, my son? I am Esau, your firstborn. Jacob is nervous. The Hebrew is emphatic. He's selling hard. But Isaac is curious. Look at verse 20 for deception number two. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. That's a whole other level of deception. Taking Yahweh's name in vain as cover for his lie. And it's despicable. And notice what Jacob also says. The Lord your God. Not my God. Not even our God. Your God. Though he wants the blessing and will later wrestle with God for one, he does not yet know Yahweh as you are. Still, Isaac is clearly not satisfied, as verses 21 to 23 indicate. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, and the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Jacob almost sinks the ship. But deception number three, organized by Rebekah, comes to the rescue. And then in verse 24, we have a fourth deception. Isaac says, Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. It's pointed out by commentators that within this scene, Isaac speaks eight times and Jacob four times. However, after Isaac says, the voice is Jacob, but the hands are Esau, Jacob only speaks one more time, and it's one word in the Hebrew. It's though as, as though Jacob realizes his voice might betray him, so thereafter he says as little as possible. He almost blows it. 
Rebecca loads the bases. Jacob fouls a couple of pitches off, but eventually he manages to hit the ball out of the park. Look at verse 27, 25 to 29. Isaac said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And this isn't the last kiss of betrayal we read about in the Scriptures. But Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. The sought after blessing, which is what all of this is about, has now been secured by Jacob. In verse 28, the blessing is marked by prosperity both as Isaac and Abraham before him experienced. One writer notes that to the present time, at the end of the rainy season and the commencement of the rainless summer, it's marked by Jewish liturgy, by prayer for dew. And after the first service, uh, Faye was telling me when she visited Israel that uh, she observed the ways that they would try and capture the dew. They would do everything that they could to try to capture the dew on the plants to ensure their continuation through the dry season. So this is a blessing of prosperity. And noteworthy is the mention of grain and wine, which were signs of covenant blessing under the Mosaic covenant that would come. And then at the Last Supper, when Jesus establishes the new covenant, what does he do? He breaks bread and he offers the cup, which is full of wine. Verse 29, the blessing is marked also by dominion in the area of family as well as internationally, which rings of Psalm 72.11, may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him, which is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of verse 29, we have this prayer for protection with a similar formula to what God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. I will bless those who bless you, And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These days are unfolding. And ultimately will come, brothers and sisters, when the lordship of Jesus Christ overall is recognized. And the blessing given to Jacob is pregnant with this. And as the unfolding of redemptive history teaches, we are in the final act. And we'll hear about more of this this evening. All of this has now just been extended to Jacob, averting disaster. Esau did not receive this, but it was such a close call, as verse 30 indicates. The interaction between Isaac and Jacob wraps up just at the right moment, which has to be providential. Verse 30 says, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. Yet, despite Esau's spiritual unfitness, Isaac's sensual misguidedness, Rebekah's scandalous methods, and Jacob's sacrilegious deception, the will of God is not thwarted. The older will serve the younger. The seed of the woman will continue through Jacob, not Esau, as God determined in his purpose of election so that everyone would know it was his doing and no one else's. 
And not all the tears in the world can undo this. Nor can the tears of worldly sorrow, which flow, as Isaac and Esau discover, a rather nasty shock. No doubt feeling on top of the world, after a successful hunt, Esau returns that thought of this wonderful prospect of receiving the blessing from Isaac, his father. As we come to this conversation, we ask, fifthly, can the worldly sorrowful resist God's will? Can the worldly sorrowful resist God's will? Let's pick up in verse 31 and 32. He also prepared, as Esau, delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that ye may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son. Your firstborn, Esau. He's clueless at this point. But the penny drops for Isaac, who has as strong as a reaction as the Hebrew language could convey. In verse 33, it says, Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. Barnhouse has a great comment here. Before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. Isaac had put his personal love of Esau ahead of the will of God. Down came his idol. And the edifice of willful love collapsed before the shaking power that took hold of him. The arrogant pride which had slyly planned to thwart God toppled to the ground, broken beyond repair. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you're not a Christian, this is the way all idols go. And we can tell what our idols are by how much we shake when they are shaken, just like Isaac did. And it is best for us to topple them ourselves in repentance with the help of God's grace, lest they be toppled for us, which is God's loving discipline if we are in Christ, for it will be God's judgment if we are not, and it will be all the more painful. For Isaac's part, he seems to have learned the lesson. The sought-after blessing has already been given, and it is binding. As Isaac expresses, it's a done deal. There's no going back, regardless of Esau's protests, which are intense. Look at verse 34 to 38. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? 
Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. Why? Such a strong reaction to what seems to us to be mere words. One writer explains, the elder son becomes the head of the family, the one who carries the family tradition, the one who defines the family's understanding of itself, the one who speaks for the family and carries out the family's direction. This is an enormous deal. Another adds, theologically for this family, it also means bearing God's promises into the next generation. Although Esau at first despises the birthright and its implicit blessing, he changes his mind, but now it's too late. He goes on, Esau wants the blessing, but not the lifestyle. God will not allow this blessing to take place. Because the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there will come a time of tragic recognition when people realize that they have missed out on all of the covenant blessings promised and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He came first not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he's coming again. And when he comes the second time, he will judge the living and the dead. And every single person who did not trust him in this life, Jesus says, will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. The bitterness that Esau experienced of missing out on the blessings of God are just an appetizer of the sheer dread of eternal condemnation and separation from the loving presence of God. People will wail and they will weep and it will be too late. Two years of COVID and its lockdowns has been a challenge. Fifty more years of COVID lockdowns would be as comparison, a paradise in comparison to eternity away from the loving presence of God. Yet no amount of tears will reverse the sentence of hell on that day. For our tears cannot wash spiritual unfitness for the kingdom of God. It's only the blood of Jesus that can do so. And it's only by trusting in him and what he accomplished on the cross, that we can enter into paradise with God. Unless we repent, we will perish, with no future opportunity for repentance. As Hebrew warns again, for you know, speaking of Esau, that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For those who do turn to Christ, there's no expiry date on the blessings of the new covenant experience in the present and the eternal future. 
but there is an expiry date on when the offer can be accepted. We have until our death, the timing of which we do not know, or until Christ returns, which may happen before we die, also at a time that we do not know. So as Paul preached in the university town of Athens on Mars Hill, he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And who is that man? It is Jesus Christ. And he has given assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. So lest that judgment overtake us by a surprise similar to Esau's when he realized he had missed out on the expected blessing. Wisdom suggests that we should respond immediately and believe in Jesus Christ today, even right now. The alternative is an anti-blessing. Parallel than what Esau received from Isaac in verses 39 and 40, Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. There's no prosperity, there's no dominion, and there's no divine protection. Esau and his descendants will be marked by the violence and opposition to Israel, which, as Isaac relates to Jacob, will only result in curse rather than blessing. Yet in the end, God's purposes are not thwarted, are they? None can resist his will. Esau, though the firstborn, does not receive it even by his tears. Isaac, though favoring the firstborn, cannot give it to him. Rebecca, though correct, can't derail God's agenda despite her scandalous, risky methods. And Jacob, though acting deceptively, blasphemously so, he still receives the blessing because that is what God ordained. None can resist his will. What this communicates to us is that God is more than capable of bringing about his glorious purposes which is a commentary on his immense power, his incalculable wisdom, and his never-failing skill to accomplish his bright designs in moments darkened by human depravity. He does so here in Genesis 27, and he does so most remarkably in the death of Christ. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he said to the gathered crowd that Jesus had been killed and crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him, he said. And in the same sentence, he also says, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. None can resist God's will. So be encouraged. That God is powerful enough to work his sovereign will despite those who are opposed to it. Be encouraged that God is gracious enough to work through and with snakes like Jacob, who he isn't yet done with, to accomplish his purposes. 
This doesn't mean there aren't consequences to our sinful actions. We're going to see this in a huge way next week in the aftermath of this scene. But in the meantime, we are comforted and encouraged to know that Yahweh is a God to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's it's interesting that these are the trio of names used in this repeated biblical formula. We run into this phrase again in the Bible, right? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Do you ever wonder about that? I don't know where I first encountered this thought, but it stuck with me. I'm just not able to credit it. We hear that Yahweh is the God of Abraham, and Abraham means the father of many, and so that brings to mind the the promises of God that the descendants of Abraham would be many and the, the nations would be blessed in him. He's the God of Abraham. And then we hear he's the God of Isaac, which Isaac's name means laughter, and so it brings to mind the joyous occasion where God provided an heir, an offspring for the aged Sarah and Abraham, and the promises continue in this miraculous way. And then we hear God, Yahweh is the God of Jacob? Liars, cheats, swindlers, deceivers? Jacob gets a new name, but the formula has his old name. And every time we hear this, we can think God is sovereign, and none can resist his will, and that God is gracious, and that he can use cheats and liars and swindlers like me and like you to accomplish the unfolding of his blessings in and through Jesus Christ. His redemptive purposes travel at God's intended speed along God's intended course and God's intended way, and no matter how many kayakers you hitch to the back of the Everace, it will arrive to port at precisely the moment designed. And the cargo of God's sovereign will is a people for himself from every tribe and language and tongue and nation for his great and majestic glory. Who can resist the will of God? Absolutely no one. And to that end, let us sing.